0: Well, if you would, take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 1, and cue the Twilight Zone music, but uh, also hold your place in Acts chapter 28, okay? So if you have your phone or you're working from your tablet, you know, you can just, just shift there when we get to Acts 28, but if you want to stick your bullets in in Acts 28, we're going to start in Matthew chapter 1. I know you probably feel like you are stuck in the twilight zone. We're never going to escape the Book of Acts, but but I want us to see something this morning about the way that those two things tie together. Uh, a huge thanks, obviously, to our our children's workers who do such a great job uh, with the kids when they go to Sunday school before this time and during the children's church time. Also, uh, I just love the music this morning. The way that that it all that it all fit together. The the choir is going, they're working, working very hard toward their cantata, which comes up this Saturday. So this coming Saturday is going to be a crazy day downtown Bay St. Louis because it's the second Saturday celebration that happens every month, but with Christmas there are so many other things going on. At 5 o'clock this coming Saturday, we have our Bethlehem Market production out in the parking lot, and so we'd love for you to come by and be a part of that on Saturday. And then at 6 o'clock is the Choir Cantata in here. So if you have friends around town who would love to come and be a part, uh, listen to the cantata worship in that way, that will be at 6 o'clock this coming Saturday. And then right after that, we'll have our live nativity time outside. And so the kids usually love that time right after the cantata. But that will be this coming Saturday. If you miss the cantata on Saturday evening, they're going to repeat it on Sunday evening at 6 o'clock. Or, as most of our people do, they like it so much Saturday night, they just come back on Sunday night to, uh, to hear it again because of, of how good it is. And so all of that is coming up, coming up this weekend. I just wanted you to... To know about that. Our game plan as we move ahead into Christmas and then beyond Christmas into the new year is that we're going to be looking at the book of Matthew. And so during this Christmas season, we're focusing in on how Matthew tells the Christmas story, kind of taking that a piece at a time. And then when we get into 2015, which sounds weird to say, but we're, we're almost there. When we get into 2015, we're going to be looking at how Matthew portrays Jesus as the king what does it mean for Jesus to be the king of the world, for Jesus to be the king of our lives? What does that look like? And so we're going to start walking through Matthew and, and begin to look at some of that. This morning, though, I want us to look at Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 18 to 25. So read along. The verses will also be up on the screen, or you can look at them uh, right there in your copy of God's Word. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, "'Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid "'to take Mary home as your wife.' When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the story of Christmas that brings so many people together this time of year. God, I pray that you would allow us to see this message of Christmas maybe in a fresh way maybe in a deeper way than we've ever approached it before. And Father, most importantly, God, I pray that we would engage our hearts and our minds with what you want to speak to us this morning through your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I have to tell you, um, and I may talk about this uh, some more at some time, but I am a terrible gift giver. When it comes, there are a lot of ways that you can show love to people. You know, you can say kind words to them, you can write them a note, you can do something for them, spend time with them. There are all these ways you can show love. One of those love languages is gift giving, and I just stink. So you all need to take care of my wife because I'm really, I'm really I, I try and the, the harder I try, the worse I do at, at giving gifts. I come from a long line of folks who have tried to give good gifts. I have a very loving family. Some of us do well. Some of us are like me and we're just really poor gift givers. And where I'm really bad is with cards, especially like a birthday card or a Christmas card or a greeting card. If I wanted to spend another $3.23 on your present, I would have spent it on your present, not buying you a card to go with your present. Like, I, I've just never, it's never made any sense to me. Why would I buy, why would I buy this card that would go with the gift that's going to be looked at and then just tossed to the side? I mean, it makes no, for my gifts, don't, don't buy me a card, just pack that money onto the top of the gift, you know? Like, that would, that makes a lot more sense to me. I've never understood greeting cards at all. Here's what I want us to engage with this morning. On the back of your bulletin is a picture of a postcard. Not much writing on there this morning. A couple of phrases that are important. If you want to take notes, you can take notes around the postcard. Here's the point though. I want us to ask the question, is our approach to Christmas more like a greeting card theology or a postcard theology? Because what I'm afraid of is even if you've grown up in church— Or maybe this is one of your first time ever in church. The way that we think about Christmas is often more like a greeting card than it is a Christmas card. A greeting card has a cute little phrase on there. You look at it, it might make you feel good inside. You might even set it up on the mantle for a little while for everybody to see. But sooner or later, that cute little phrase is gone. The card's in the trash, and you've moved on with life. Unless you're one of the people that keep the greeting cards forever— in which case, that, that's your own, your own issue. But uh, some people love to do that. So there's a greeting card. There's a greeting card mentality with a cute little phrase. And then there's a postcard mentality. Postcards, when people write you a postcard, oftentimes it's not a cute little phrase. It's just an authentic expression of how they feel. They've traveled somewhere. Where something about it screams journey adventure. I'm going somewhere. I'm being authentic with you. This has really impacted my life. I've seen something that I think is amazing and I want you to see it too. There's greeting card and there's postcard. And I think that the story of Matthew points us toward a postcard theology. This has impacted me. It's taken me somewhere and I want you to see what it's done in my life. What Matthew does is he begins in chapter one with this long genealogy. It's not boring on purpose. It's a genealogy meant to say God keeps his promises. God has had a plan for salvation from the very beginning of the world, and he keeps his promises, and this promise is going to be kept, it's going to be fulfilled through Jesus. So all of those first 17 verses in Matthew point toward this. And then look in verse 18, what Matthew does. And we've got some some verses will be showing up on the screen if you don't have a Bible in front of you. But, but look at how Matthew begins here. He begins with, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. That may not seem particularly, uh, you know, something that catches our eye, except, and we don't have this verse on the screen, but if you can look up or scroll up in your phone to verse 16, look how the genealogy ends in Verse 16. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. And so Matthew is purposefully drawing our focus toward Christ, that everything was focused toward him, everything was moving toward him, this is how he was coming. Here's the deep reality of Christmas. People had been waiting for the Christ, and Christ is just another word for Messiah or rescuer, they had been waiting for the Messiah for hundreds of years, even, even thousands of years, waiting for who this rescuer would be. And it's hard for us to comprehend what this waiting would have felt like. Here's my best stab at what this waiting would have felt like. Imagine you really love a sports team. Maybe a sports team that dresses in black and gold, all right? And they've always been around, They're not actually always been around, they haven't been around that long when you think about it, but they were bad for a long time. I don't know what sports team we're talking about, but there's a sports team in black and gold and they were bad for a long time. And the people stuck with them, sort of. Sometimes they wore paper bags on their head, you know, uh, but they stuck with them and they were waiting waiting for something good to happen. Sure, little hints of light would come in people like Archie Manning that maybe something will happen. But we continued to wait and continued to wait. And then finally, finally, and I'm going to use this language, but we're going to back away for it in a second. Finally, the Savior came, the Messiah, and people even called him Breezus. Have you heard that? People have called him Breezes. I know it sounds so sacrilegious, but built into our culture is this idea of salvation. You are waiting for something to happen, and along comes someone like Drew Breeze or Sean Payton, along comes somebody and does what no one else could do before, There is a waiting period, you know what you're waiting on, it finally happens, and the person that brings it, you call Savior, or Messiah, or Rescuer. And and I know that that's sacrilegious to tie that into sports, but it gives us an idea of what waiting feels like. And the people had been waiting for the Messiah, and that Messiah was going to be Jesus. But what's incredible is the way that Matthew tells the story. It says down in verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. So Mary there in verse 18, you guys can skip ahead to the next screen. I think it highlights some words maybe on on the next screen. That idea that Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. Now remember that Mary at this point is probably around 13, maybe 14 years old. So she is very, very young at this point and she is engaged. The old translations say betrothed to Joseph. Remember in this time, engagement or being betrothed to someone was very close to marriage. It wasn't something, even today, an engagement's not something that you break off easily because it can be very expensive when you've invested lots of money in that. But uh, you you don't break off an engagement easily. But especially in that culture, it was even closer to marriage. And so here's this girl, Mary, who's probably 13. She's pregnant. All of this gossip is swirling around her. She is, and, and we, have to, we have to watch the language here, but don't forget the fact that when God came into our world through Jesus, he came through an un, unwed teen mother. And in our culture today, it's so easy to look down on people and so easy to condemn people, and yet Jesus came into our world through an unwed teen mother. And this is God's plan to show that it was going to be a very natural thing, a real baby born to a real woman in real hard circumstances, but it wasn't just a human thing. There was more to it than that. It says down in verse 9, or the end of verse 18, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. If you have a paper copy or your phone allows you to highlight, underline or highlight through the Holy Spirit. This is a massive phrase in the middle of Matthew's Christmas story. Because what Matthew is saying is this this birth is going to be natural. It is going to be a real baby born to a real woman in really difficult circumstances. But it's also more than that. It is something that only God can truly do. And here's where the tie-in comes. All throughout the Old Testament, as you have these prophecies of who the Messiah would be— Men like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Zechariah and all these prophets throughout the Old Testament, as they are prophesying about the Lord's redemption and the Lord's rescue, one of the keys to their prophecy is that when that happens, when the Messiah comes, the key factor will be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And what happens right here in Matthew Through the Holy Spirit. This is a sign to us, if we've read our Old Testament and we know the prophets, it's a sign to us that God is doing exactly what He always promised to do. Through an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, this baby would be born. But here's where it really gets fun I've kept you in the book of Acts for 30 weeks now. How was the church born in the book of Acts? An outpouring of the Holy Spirit. God would send his Messiah, he would send his rescuer into the world through human means, through a real birth, but done through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then God would give birth to the church, to his people through human means. Real people, real places, real languages, but he would do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so what we see is the way that God ties together the birth of Jesus and the birth of the church— done in human ways, but only done by the power of the Holy Spirit, which teaches us a lot about what it means to be a church, that we are real people with real problems. If you come into church and you think that everybody around you has it all together, it's just not true. They may think they have it all together. We may want to think we have it all together. We don't have it all together. And one of the greatest lies that we have perpetuated in church along the way is I would be a part of that or I might try that out, but I just don't have it together like they do. And yet the reality of the church and the reality of the Messiah and the reality of salvation is that's just the point. We don't have it all together. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are given life and hope and new direction. God does something in us. God does something in the church that we could never do on our own. If you go back and you read the genealogy of Jesus, those names in the first 17 verses, there are a lot of bad people in there. Like that list, the first 17 verses of Matthew, those people struggle. There are murderers and liars and deceivers and prostitutes and just about every type of person you could imagine shows up there and what God is showing us is those are the type of people I use and I use them by my grace and through the power of the Holy Spirit to do something that they could never do on their own. So that's the idea of how Mary fits into Matthew's story, but there's also Joseph. Down there in verse 18, it says his mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, and just another way of saying before they had sex, before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. When it says that Joseph is a righteous man, it means that he is a law-abiding Jew. He is going to do what is right in the eyes of the law of God. He's, he's going to be a righteous man. But you also see some tenderness in Joseph here. He doesn't want to embarrass Mary. He doesn't want to shame her. And, and guys, you know, we could probably pass by and not even make this point, but let's just make it. There is no room, ever, ever, ever for embarrassing or shaming another woman, especially in public, where it's going to cause her reproach, where it's going to cause her shame and embarrassment. And so that's not the point of this story, but it's it's worth mentioning the way that Joseph handles this situation. He doesn't want to shame her. He doesn't want to embarrass her. And so it says he's going to divorce her quietly. It seems like his only good option until verse 20. After he had considered this, An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So just in case we missed it earlier, Matthew inserts from the Holy Spirit again in verse 20. Verse 21, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. When it says that he's to be called Jesus, the background word there is Joshua, which just means that Yahweh saves, the Lord saves, that he is powerful to save, and so you're to name him Jesus. In some way, God lets Joseph off the hook here, because what is more difficult than naming your child? (laughs) When you're trying to think— what name are we going to use? What's it going to look like? It, in this culture, you didn't give a name to the child until the eighth day, until the day on which the son was circumcised. Now, I know some of you have gotten to the last minute before you left the hospital, before you actually declared the name because of all this uncertainty about what you were going to, to name the child. They gave the name on the eighth day, and the idea was the name was going to— uh, characterize the child. It was going to say something about the child. And God says, this child is going to be the one that I will use to bring salvation. Now, salvation, if we're not careful, is a greeting card word. We say that's a churchy term. It's a theological term. I've been saved. If if you walk up to someone and you say, have you been saved before? We, We assume that we know what we mean there we need to make sure we understand what salvation means in the story. Because remember, the people had been waiting for the Messiah for hundreds of years. Thousands of years, they had been waiting for salvation. But their idea of salvation, on many accounts, was that God would send a military hero who would defeat the oppressors around them and would save them from these other militaries that were trying to kill them. It would be more of this political military salvation. Except when God actually does send Jesus, when He does send the Messiah, He doesn't sign up as a military commander, He doesn't show up as a politician. He comes as a completely different type of Savior. They didn't need to be saved, it wasn't what they expected being saved from something out there. The salvation was actually in here. And so many times we think our problem is out there. God save us from the government. God, save us from the economy. God, save me from my family. And we don't realize that the salvation that needs to happen is actually in here. Look on the screen at Psalm 130. This is a psalm that was in the background for Matthew when he was writing these phrases. Psalm 130 says, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities. If you don't know the word iniquity, it's just another word for... uh, Uh, A word for sins. Oh, it actually says sins. Perfect. I should just read from the screen. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. And then watch what the psalmist does here. I wait for the Lord. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins." This is a huge prophecy in the Old Testament that when the salvation and the redemption comes, it wouldn't be from military oppression. It would be from their sins. And that's exactly what Matthew is doing right here. Matthew most likely as a child had memorized Psalm 130. And so that's reigning in the back of his mind when he's thinking about the idea of Jesus coming. Down in verse 22, it says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, it, you may be saying, yeah, but earlier he was supposed to call him Jesus, and here the scripture says he's supposed to call him Emmanuel. So which one is it? Now you have to feel for Joseph. In this situation, because what seemed like a very easy task, I'll call him Jesus, now gets complicated by Emmanuel. So Joseph and Mary are having this discussion do we spell Emmanuel with an I or an E? All right, so they're in the hospital, all the trauma of the birth has happened, and they're there trying to decide do we spell Emmanuel with an I or an E? These are difficult moments. The only reason I know is because I sat with my wife in a parking lot one time before a child was going to be coming into our family, and we were trying to figure out how to spell a particular name. Not surprisingly, we went with her spelling. I know that shocks you, but uh, we went with her spelling. And so uh, you you know what it feels like to say, how are we going to name this child? And so here comes along this prophecy from Isaiah that the child will be born, and he will be called Emmanuel, God with us. What Matthew is doing for us, he is saying that when God saves He will save through his presence. He won't save staying far away from them. He will come and be with them, and he will save. It's one thing. It's one thing to say to someone, hey, I'll help you, and you just send them a check, or you just call them. It's another thing to say, I will help you, and they show up at your house. They are present with you in the midst of that circumstance. That is the way the Lord will work. He will come, and he will be present with us, and through his presence will come that salvation. Look what happens in verse 24. When Joseph woke up, he was thankful that he hadn't eaten Taco Bell the night before, because he had this crazy situation going on. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. The word Jesus, the idea of Jesus, becomes the beginning of this section in verse 18 and becomes the end of it in verse 25. Now, there's something interesting going on here with Joseph and Mary after he finds out what's happening and how the Lord is working. Two interesting things— If you grew up in a Catholic background, or you've been a part of a Catholic school or something like that, there's a teaching within the Catholic Church of the idea of the perpetual virginity of Mary, essentially saying that Mary and Joseph never came together in sexual union. It does say here that they did not come together. They had no union. He had no union with her until she gave birth to a son there is no sign in Scripture that Joseph and Mary never came together in in sexual union. And and so I'm not, I I don't mean in any way to speak badly about the Catholic Church. We have many good friends and, and brothers and sisters there, but there's just no Scriptural basis out of this particular text for the idea of a perpetual virginity. And for Joseph's sake, we're just thankful that that's probably, probably not the case. That the way That's not the way it happened. And, and, and so, it, most likely that's not happening here. What we do see, what we do see is something very interesting. You see a picture of waiting. This whole story, this whole Advent idea is about waiting, about God is going to act and he's going to act in his time and in his way. And Joseph actually gives us a picture here of waiting for God to act in his time, in his way. Joseph doesn't want to take any chance that there'll be confusion added to the situation by he and Mary coming together in this union. And so he waits. He plays out Advent for us. He shows us what it looks like to wait for the Messiah by waiting for Jesus to be born before he and Mary come together. Okay, what does this have to do with the book of Acts? Acts chapter 28, the verses will be up on the screen here. Let's look at the very end of the book of Acts, and this will wrap up our time together this morning. I want to, I want to make this connection together. So if you haven't been with us in previous weeks, a man named Paul has been traveling all across this ancient world, spreading the gospel, he gets arrested, and he appeals to Caesar. Caesar. He wants to go to Rome to, to, for his case to be heard. So he goes on this adventure across the Mediterranean Sea. They're shipwrecked. Things go crazy, but ultimately they get to Rome. And when he gets to Rome, he's put under house arrest. This is, these are the very last verses in the book of Acts. Therefore, Paul is speaking here. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation, key word there, God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles. It's going to go to all the people and they will listen. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week, we asked the question, why did it take Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, why did it take Luke so many verses to get Paul to Rome? Here's the question this week why in the world does the book of Acts end like this? The book of Acts is probably the most adventurous book in the New Testament, and it ends with Paul under house arrest just saying that he's going to proclaim the kingdom of God and he's gonna teach about Christ, and then the whole book ends. Why does Luke do that? Why, why leave Paul in Rome at the end of the story? It's kind of like you get to the end of the movie, and they don't, they don't complete it. They leave you with a cliffhanger. But let me ask you a question. When a movie leaves you with a cliffhanger, what do you expect? A sequel. What you expect a sequel. It tells you something, and what it tells you is that the story isn't finished yet. Because the story was never about Paul to begin with. The story was always about the spread of the gospel and a gospel that was centered in Jesus Christ. The story of Christmas leading to the story of Easter that would then lead to the story of the church. And so we don't live in Matthew 1. We don't live in Acts 28. Do you know where we live? We live in Acts 29. That's the world we live in right now. We are the sequel. The church right now proclaiming the message of salvation, living out this task of being God's people in this world, we have a great message. And we have a great task. And now our job is to do what Joseph did and do what Paul did and just be faithfully obedient to that message and that task. The message is the same as the message we see in the New Testament. The task is the same task that Paul leaves us with at the end of Acts. And now our question is, will we be an Acts 29 church? Will we continue to live out that message and live out that task? Now you might ask, okay, that's that's good, Owen. That sounds good in theory. I want to be a part of that. How? How do we do that? Here's what I love about these two stories, Matthew 1 and Acts 28. It gives us a couple of ways to do that, but they are incredibly simple. If you want to know how to be a part of an Acts 29 church, start with Mary and Joseph and start as a couple. Start as a couple wanting to honor the Lord. Start as a family dedicating yourself to the things of the Lord. Start as someone who says, I'm going to be a parent or a grandparent or a guardian or our family is going to be committed to the Lord. This is how we're going to do that. And you might say, well, you know what? I would love to have a family, or I would love to be married, or that's just not my story. Well, if you're single, guess what? Paul was single. That was his story. Guess who else was single? Lottie Moon was single. She even turned a guy away who came after her because she said, no, I have to do this. This is what the Lord has called me to. So whether you have a family like Joseph and Mary, or you are single like Paul and Lottie Moon— Simply commit yourself to the things of the Lord. The other way that you can do this is by the way you go to work or you go to school or you live your days. Joseph was a carpenter. When God started working in his life, do you know what Joseph continued to do? He continued to be a carpenter. Sometimes if we're not careful and and we have to be cautious of this in church, we can end up telling stories that sound like this. Someone is living their life going to work And then they become a Christian, and God does this work in their life, and they start working in a church, and and they go on staff at a church. Let me just say, there is nothing wrong with that. That, That's a fantastic thing. I mean, that's incredible when the Lord calls you to that work— But sometimes, without meaning to, what we say is, if God really changes your life, then you'll change careers automatically, or you'll start doing this. In fact, what you probably need to do is continue in the same career that you already have, living wholeheartedly obedient to the Lord and what He's calling you to do. That's what Joseph does. Guess what Paul was? He was a tent maker. Guess what Paul did when he went to Rome? He probably continued to make tents. There are signs in the New Testament that even when he was under house arrest, even during this time, he was probably continuing to do exactly what he had been called to do. When Lottie Moon got to China, do you know the first thing that she did? Not start a church, because what was Lottie Moon before she went to China? She was a teacher. Guess what she did when she got to China? She continued to teach. That's who God had made her. And so she got her start in China by teaching. And so what we find is when it means to be faithfully, consistently, sacrificially obedient to the Lord, it starts with our family, whether you have a family or you're single and that is your family, you're living for the Lord, or wherever you're working. If you're going to school, if you have a job, if you're retired, whatever the Lord has called you to do. Here's what I want us to commit to this morning, and we'll, we'll wrap up with these last points. Here's what I want us to commit to. We have a great message The story of Christmas, that God has sent a savior, Emmanuel, God with us, the one that has been waiting on to bring rescue and to bring salvation. He has come, and we have this message to proclaim, and we have a great task, and that task is to carry on as the church, to be an Acts 29 church, to continue to do what Paul has done. Our response to that is just to be faithfully obedient just to do what God is calling you to do, to commit yourself to that message, to commit yourself to that task, and then say, Lord, use me. I'm giving myself to you. As we get ready to wrap up, I'm gonna pray for us. And then after I pray, I'll be down here at the front. If you just need someone to pray for you about being obedient to the Lord, If you're asking the Lord, God, how can you use me? What are you doing in my life? I would love to pray for you. I'm available, obviously, throughout the week, anytime, and you can contact with me. But if you want to do that, we'd love for you to do that. Here's the other thing. If you want to be a part of a church that says, we're going to be an Acts 29 church, we're going to continue this message, we're going to continue this task, and you want to be a part of a church like that, I would love to talk to you about that, what that looks like. Even better than that, right after the service is finished this morning, we're having a lunch over in the multi-purpose building. And if you're new here and you're just curious about what it means to be a part of this church, what it means to be a part of an Acts 29 church, we would love for you to join us and and we can talk some more about that. However God is working in your life, all I would ask you to do is be faithfully obedient to that message and that task. Let's pray together and we're going to sing as we wrap up.